You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at Redeemer Bible Church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Today's reading is Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Please pray with me once more. Father, your word is a pure word, and we need it. So I pray that you would attend the preaching of your word, that you would speak to us, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Would you show us Christ this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How do we live faithfully in a world filled with harmful lies? How should Christians respond to a culture that's promoting lies that harm people? How should Christians respond to aggressive false narratives that threaten our jobs and our children? Have you considered what you will do when your workplace demands that you broadcast your preferred pronouns? What will you do when your boss demands that you affirm in your email signature or on a badge that human nature is like Play-Doh and that we can reshape it as we please? How will you respond when our local schools promote harmful and deforming medical interventions for children under the banner of gender-affirming care? How do we respond to a world degraded by deceit? How do we respond to a world that employs words as weaponry to attack God, to mislead the innocent, and to attack us? How do we live faithfully in a world filled with lies? This is not a new question for God's people. Because he loves us, he hasn't left us without guidance. Psalm 12 is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. If you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know 
that we are delighted you are here. I also want to recognize that there are some words in this text and in this sermon that may be hard for you to hear. While some things may be hard to hear in this text, we believe that every word of God is a good word. He is careful with his language. Sometimes his words wound us, but he is never capricious or needlessly harsh. Every word he speaks, he speaks to reveal his holiness and his grace so that we might repent and believe and live. I hope you will follow along with me in Psalm 12 to see that these are, in fact, God's words and God's thoughts, not our own. Regarding Psalm 12, an early church father, Athanasius, uh, is helpful. Now keep in mind, this is the Athanasius who was exiled five times by four Roman emperors. He was exiled for defending the deity of Christ against the false claims of the Arians that Christ was merely a creature. And his defense of orthodoxy earned him the title Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. This man, he commends us regarding Psalm 12, and he says this, when you see the arrogance of the crowd and evil spreading everywhere so that there seems to be no one left who is pleasing to God, take refuge in the Lord and say Psalm 12. As we face this fallen world's war of words against God, we can confidently trust that God will be shown true, though every man a liar. Although sinners assault God and his people with words, God will fulfill his promises to save his people and judge his enemies. Though sinners try to ungod God with their speech, God will be shown to be God and his words the only safe haven for his people. God is true, though every man a liar. That's very bad news for his opponents but it's very good news for those of us who have ceased our war of words and trusted in Jesus Christ. Psalm 12 offers us a threefold response to the world's war of words against God and his people. In verses one and two, we learn to cry out to God for safety. In verses three to five, we learn to cry out to God for justice. And in verses six and seven, we learn to trust in God's words. How do we respond to deceit all around us? We cry out to God for safety. We cry out to God for justice. And we trust in his words. Let's start in verse one. Cry out to God for safety. The psalmist says, save, O Lord. That's the first petition which immediately raises the question, from what? From what does the psalmist need saving? David offers three quick statements that clarify his desperation. The first two statements poetically complement each other. They are mutually clarifying. For the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Keep your eye on verse 1. In the first line, we see the nature of the problem. 
And in the second line, we see the scope of the problem. The nature of the problem is that the godly one is gone. In Hebrew, godly one is chasid. It's in the same family as the word chesed, which appears throughout the Old Testament to describe God's covenantal faithfulness. Our English Bibles often translate chesed, steadfast love, or covenantal love. For David here to say that there is no chasid, there is no godly one, is to say that there is seemingly no one living in covenant faithfulness to the Lord. David looks around desperately for someone who is covenantally faithful, who lives according to God's law, who obeys his Torah, but he sees no one. We see in this second statement the scope of the problem. We see that the problem is universal in scope. He says, for the faithful have vanished. Those who faithfully live in relationship with the Lord have vanished. He can't find anyone who is loyal or devoted to Yahweh. This is synonymous to his first statement that the godly one is gone. But he adds the qualifier. Where have the faithful vanished from? From among the children of man. The same phrase appears in verse 8 and brackets the whole passage. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The phrase children of man here is literally sons of Adam, b'nai Adam, Adam's children, his offspring, all those born from his lineage. Although David writes from a specific context of trouble within Israel, the problem of unfaithfulness to God is universal. The rebellion began in Eden. It has its roots in Adam's disobedience, and all who followed him followed him. The problem is that the sons of Adam have not been covenantally faithful to God. But what does this look like? What does this rebellion against God look like on the street? How does it manifest itself? David's third assertion here sharpens the first two reasons that he gives, that the Lord must save. Verse 2. What characterizes a culture of rebellion against God? Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Everyone is a liar, David says. They all shade the truth. They all flatter one another. They all manipulate one another with words to get what their hearts truly desire. He goes on to describe this war of words in further detail in verses 3 and 4. Not only do they have flattering lips, they have tongues that make great boasts. They are those who say, verse 4, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? They are, according to verse 8, the prowling wicked who exalt what is vile. And so the psalmist cries out, save, O Lord. God created human beings in his image with the ability to relate and to communicate with him and with one another. He charged humanity to be fruitful and multiply 
to fill the earth with little images of him that he might be praised and enjoyed. The world exists to display his glory. You exist to display his glory. He gave us words so that we could worship him. He gave us words so that we could witness to our neighbors about him. Words exist from him and through him and to him. And yet human history is the story of God's gift of words being perverted and utilized in an attempt to ungod God. It's the history of creatures trying to liberate themselves from their creator by writing him out of the story. Instead of gladly receiving God's invitation into covenant joy, sinners attempt to establish an alternative reality in which they are gods. And the primary weapon of their rebellion, of our rebellion, has not been swords or spears. Humanity's choice instruments for casting off God's authority aren't pistols, rifles, or bombs. Human words are the primary instrument by which God's creatures oppose him, deny him, and attempt to recraft reality so as to remove any claim that he has on their lives. Do you feel the irony and the tragedy of this? It is outrageous and it's fearful. Like the psalmist, if we're going to faithfully follow the Lord in the context of this war of words, we must learn to cry out to God for safety. But the petition, save, is somewhat general. It's not specific. Which leads us to ask, in what ways should we pray for God to save? Who is God saving? Who is he saving them from? How will he do it? As I meditated on this, I came to three conclusions. I think there are three ways in particular that we ought to regularly pray for God to save. First, we ought to pray for God to save those who are most in danger of being victimized by liars. We ought to pray for the innocent to be saved from liars. In some sense, this is all of us. We are all potential victims of the world's verbal rebellion against God. And yet we see in verse 5 that God is moved to act, especially on behalf of those who cannot act for themselves. It's the poor who are plundered. It's the needy who groan. We should pray for the disadvantaged. In a culture where everyone uses their lips to scrape and to claw to the top, where people praise what is evil to get ahead and deceive at every turn, those groups will be the most vulnerable among us. They will be the most susceptible to suffering harm. Unborn children would be one example. Unborn children are slaughtered daily in this country and around the world because the truth of their inherent value as image bearers created in the image of God has been shaded over. They cannot speak for themselves. They cannot produce counter arguments for their existence. There is no oppressed and needy class in the world like unborn children. We should pray for their safety. Young children also 
Young children are inundated with deceitful narratives in our culture. Boys can be girls. Girls can be boys. Love is love. Authority that contradicts your desires is always oppressive. You exist to express yourself. They are told, as long as you have your lips, no one can be master over you. We should pray for their safety regularly. Only God has the power to save our children from these deceptive cultural mantras that appeal to their sinful hearts. So first, we should pray for the innocent to be saved from liars. Second, we should pray for safety for our church from the same flattering impulses that characterize our world. We should ask God to protect us, this church, from a culture of flattery. We should receive Psalm 12 as a gracious warning from God to us. It's super easy to rail against the lies and the flattery of our culture without stopping to consider how we relate to one another. We should ask ourselves, is my life characterized at all by flattery, double-heartedness, and deception? Do I ever subtly manipulate others with my words to get what I want? Do I ever shade the truth so that others will think more highly of me? Do I ever dodge intimacy with brothers and sisters in Christ in order to veil what is really going on with me? I worry that too often flattery passes for Christian fellowship. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. I grew up down south where it was, how's it going, brother? And the response was always, oh, I'm blessed in the Lord, brother. And that can be, that can be authentic. We are called as followers of Christ to rejoice always. But that type of response can just as often function like a mask that cuts us off from other Christians who would be able to care for us in the way that God has ordained for them to care for us, who would be able to bear our burdens, who would be able to pray for us when we are struggling. Christians are the most blessed of all people. That's a fact. But we have yet to enter into the fullness of that blessing that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. We have yet to enter into the fullness of our inheritance as sons of God. We have yet to shed the remnants of indwelling sin. We have yet to receive our resurrection bodies. We have yet to enter into the fullness of joy in God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth. All that blessing is yet to come. And the church flatters herself we flatter ourselves if we pretend like we are anything other than a bunch of weak and needy sinners clinging to a strong Savior. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes with holy sarcasm to challenge this type of mentality. He challenges Corinthians who had been puffed up in favor of one teacher over another based on their perceived wisdom and strength. Their factionalism was fueled by the worldly assumption that the strongest Christians look strong 
and that the wisest Christians look wise. They were despising neediness and weakness. And so Paul writes, starting in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share your rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, he says, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, be imitators of me. Saints, now that we have been redeemed, let us not flatter ourselves. The gospel frees us to walk in the light with one another. The apostle John writes about this sort of gospel culture in his first letter, a culture where people's confidence rests not in the fact that they have it all put together, but it rests in the blood. First John 1, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We can have authentic, real, genuine relationships with one another. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. True Christian fellowship cannot be built on flattery. It must be built on our unshakable confidence that Christ has fully paid for all of our sins with his precious blood. He was faithful to forgive my sins when I first repented and laid hold of him, and he will be faithful to forgive every single one of my sins that I walk into the light from this day to eternity. As someone covered by the blood, there is no wrath for you left to bear. If you have been hidden in the sun, you need not hide your sins, shortcomings, and failures. You need not be ashamed of neediness and weakness. He has placed you, according to Psalm 12:5, in the safety for which your soul longs. He is his covenant words will never fail. They are like silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ, in whom you have been placed. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let us, each one of us, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So how do we cry out to God for safety? We pray that God would save the innocent from liars. We pray that God would save us, his church, from a culture of flattery. 
And we pray for the liar's safety from ultimate judgment. We pray that God would convert liars. At this point, some of you may be thinking, now, Connor, I don't see that in this text. And you would be right. But if we continue on from Psalm 12 through the rest of Scripture, we learn that in God's merciful providence, He has made a way for liars to be redeemed through the blood of His Son. God doesn't merely shut the mouths of liars by destroying them. He also does it by redeeming them. Ezekiel talks about this in chapter 16. God promises, I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. He says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. God's promises here to confound and silence sinners comes by atonement in Jesus. Likewise, Paul talks about something similar in Romans 3. He says that when sinful human beings realize their inability to keep God's law, when the Holy Spirit moves on a sinner's heart and softens it to see that they are actually enemies of God, he says this, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He continues in verse 21, but now, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is the righteousness that God gives as a gift, the gift of Christ's righteousness counted for all who believe. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to a Christian as someone who has been shut up before God. If you are here this morning and you have not been shut up before God, you can cease and desist your war of words against God. Your verbal rebellion can end today. You can stop trying to construct an alternative reality with your words as though you are God the master of your own fate. He invites you to come, to be confounded, to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ who bore God's wrath on the tree for liars like us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. All who come to him in faith will be safe and secured in God's loving arms. You will be free from wrath and free to follow him who never deceived, who never flattered, who never abused others with his language. He never manipulated others or fought God with his speech. The one who has the words of life, he invites you to come, to die to yourself, to be forgiven through his blood and to follow him. So we cry out to God for safety. 
safety for our children, safety for our churches, and safety for the wicked who God intends to shut up by their glad-hearted reception of Christ's atoning sacrifice. That's point one. Don't worry, two and three are relatively short. We see the fate of those who won't receive Jesus in the psalmist's second petition in verse three. May the Lord cut off, that's the request. May he cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? This is an imprecation. The psalmist is crying out for God to act, and we should too. When faced with an evil culture, Christians pray. We cry out to God for justice. We don't scream down our neighbors, nor resign ourselves to passive indifference toward those who drag away the innocent to the slaughter. We direct our righteous anger to God, and we trust him to act. This is not a plan that rules out tangible action for the oppressed. Rather, it's a disposition of the soul. Prayer must be our first response and our predominant response to evil. We should advocate against wicked bills like HF 146 that make Minnesota a safe haven for parents who would mutilate their children under the banner of transgender tolerance. But ultimately, our hope lies not in any bills or laws or even a culture that recognizes the truth. Our hope lies in our Lord Jesus Christ, who will return to judge the living and the dead. No evil deed will be swept under the cosmic carpet. All will be open and exposed at the final judgment. No wicked action, none will go unnoticed. The righteous one will righteously judge the unrighteous. You can be certain that the Lord sees, he hears, and he will act to judge and to save. The Lord himself answers the question from verse four, who is master over us? Look at verse five. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. This is the Lord himself interjecting into the psalm to provide his people, to provide us with absolute certainty. He says, I want you to know, beloved, that this won't go on forever. Like my oppressed children in Egypt, I see your misery and I hear your groans. I know that your cultural situation is distressing. I will act. I will judge. I will save. I will place you in the safety for which your soul longs. Don't lose heart when you see vileness exalted all around you. The night is darkest just before the dawn. Stay awake and cling to my promises. He promises to save his beloved and to judge his enemies. In Revelation, he puts it this way. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, 
he will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire, which is the second death. And while we wait, we trust in his reliable word. It's the third thing we do. We cry out for safety, we cry out for justice, and we trust in his reliable words. Verses six and seven. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. The words of the Lord are pure words. They are flawless. They are like highly refined, precious metals. Commentator Alan Ross is helpful here. He says, God's word is clear, direct, true, and reliable. To make this point, David uses the image of refining ore in a furnace on the earth. In the process, impurities would be removed from the metal being refined. It might take several attempts before all the impurities were removed. David is making a comparison with that process here. It is as if the word of God has been put through such a process seven times, the number of completion and perfection, end quote. Now, don't, don't mishear what he's saying here. David is not saying that God's words once contained impurities, but now have become pure. That's not, that's not the point of the analogy. The point of the analogy between refined silver and God's words is that they are both completely reliable. They can be counted on. They have no impurities which would cause them to fail. They are reliable and strong enough to support all of our hopes. This expression of confidence in God's word is most immediately probably referring to the promises that he's just made in verse 5, to save the poor and the needy and to judge the wicked. But by extension, it's true of all God's promises. All of his promises are pure and reliable because his words are an extension of his own character, his own being. God is true, though every man a liar, and his sure promises cannot fail. We live in a desperately scary world that seems to be darkening with each passing day. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, but through faith in Christ, we have been adopted into God's family. And he is a good father, and like any good father, he hears and he responds to the cries of his children. So let's cry out. Let's cry out in our anger and confusion. Cry out for safety and cry out for justice. Then rely on the scriptures to guide you into wise and righteous living. Trust his promises to preserve you through every distress. Hold fast to your Bible as a lamp for your feet and a light for your path. The Lord will keep you. 
He will guard you from this generation forever, even as the wicked prowl and vileness is exalted among the children of men. Let's pray.